You're listening to Profiles in France Formation, the podcast where we hear from inspiring people who have pursued their dream of moving to France. We learn about why they moved, how they overcame the challenges they faced, and what they love and hate about living in France. I hope that hearing their stories can help you to pursue your dreams and maybe your very own France Formation. I'm your host, Alison Grant Luness, and I'm here to tell you my guests followed their dreams, and you can follow yours too. It starts today. Welcome to this special bonus episode of Profiles in Transformation. In this episode, your transformation's very own online business manager, Shelly Wild, interviews me about my own transformation. I'm Allison Grant Luness, a consultant helping clients move to France, the author of Foolproof French Visas and the Five Decisions Big Dreamers Make Before Their Transformation. I'm also the creator of online courses including Fast Track to France, The Complete French Business Incubator, and Intro to Microentrepreneur. I'm admin of the Americans in France Facebook group with over 14,000 members and creator of the unique transformation system helping dozens of clients annually to bring their dreams of moving to France to, re- to reality. This is Shelly Wild, who is based in the UK, not too far from Little Whinging, where Credit <laughs> Drive is located. <laughs> Shelly has been working as the online business manager for Your Transformation since February and has helped us to create so many wonderful things, including like putting all of our programs back online onto Kajabi and helping us set up all of these wonderful ways of making sure we can share content and useful resources with with our clients and with people who sign up for some free goodies on our mailing list. And today, Shelly is going to interview me about... Well, I don't really know yet. She hasn't told me any of the questions, <laughs> so I will let you take it away. Thank you so much. Yes, so obviously, Alison usually gets to interview people on her podcast and ask them all the uh, the interesting, juicy questions. But today, the tables are turned. We get to ask her some juicy questions. First of all, I would love to know a little bit about your origin story with France. So how old were you? Where were you? What was it that suddenly sparked this interest in France that made you think like, oh, I want to go there. I want to live there. Like, where did it all begin? It started when I was about seven and my aunt Joanne came to spend a year in France. So it was circa maybe 92, 93, so maybe even a little younger than seven. She came, she did a part of her postdoc in some science research facility. She's an immunologist and a cancer researcher. And she came and did a year of cancer research in a lab in Paris. My grandparents went to visit her. My parents went to visit her. I was not invited. (laughs) (laughs) My parents brought back a beautiful Barbie from Paris, which I don't even think was like Paris Barbie. I think it was just like a Barbie. And when my aunt came back, she started like teaching me some words in French and like got she brought me back a t-shirt and started talking about France. And I just like was in love. (laughs) And I did some kind of like after school program as a kid where I learned a little bit of French, like the colors and the numbers and what you do. And I just, from that moment, like always wanted to take French. And I started in middle school taking French 
and I was just on the edge of my seat. I thought it was the coolest thing, not only to be able to speak another language, but like, I remember asking my French teacher, like, how do we know that you're telling us like things that are actual words and not like, how do we know you're teaching us things like it's raining outside today instead of aliens come from your foreign planet to eat me for breakfast. And so I was just in love with the idea of, of learning another language, of learning French specifically. And I thought it was really beautiful and poetic. I remember in my eighth grade French textbook, it had all of the weather. So it had like, il pleut for raining, it's raining. And for whatever reason, I heard, or I saw in the book somewhere, il pleure, like he's crying. And I looked in the glossary or the index or whatever of the textbook, and I couldn't find that word in like the book dictionary. And so I thought that the word for he's crying and the word for it's raining were the same. And I just thought, <laughs> oh my God, what a beautiful poetic language that, <laughs> you know, we say the sky, in French, you say the sky is crying. Much better story. Yes, <laughs> it yep. took me like years of learning French to realize that, no, I was just actually an idiot. I mean, the word legitimately was not in the glossary of like French. He's, uh, Pleure was not in the glossary of the year one French textbook, but... <laughs> That sort of solidified my my conception of French as like a romantic and beautiful poetic language where you could say things in such a beautiful way. <laughs> I like your version better. I think we should go with that one. Definitely. Sure. sure. <laughs> so you're located in Paris with your family. Is there any reason that you chose Paris aside from anywhere else in France? Mostly the Eiffel Tower. So I'm actually just outside of Paris. I spent the first two years of three years of being in France in Paris. When I first came to France, I was a study abroad student and I lived right near Anvers and I could walk 50 meters outside my door and see the Eiffel Tower sparkling, which I did quite a bit. And then my, when I came back to Paris, I found a place not too far away near, in the 14th, near Rue Daguerre, which is like a cute little market street. And then we stayed in that neighborhood the first year I was together with my husband. We were not yet married, but we lived together. And then at that point, we started looking for new places because our lease was up and we went outside of Paris and we realized like, oh, we can get twice as much apartment for <laughs> the same rent and just mm -hmm. a slightly longer train ride. And it was closer to like where my husband worked. So we decided to move to Aubervilliers, which is touches Paris to the north. It is not a great place to live. It's not super, it's not super safe. Unfortunately, we had some sketchy things happen there. And because my husband's a teacher, we sort of got on the waiting list for rent controlled housing. And what the way it works is you can sort of identify places that you want to live near where the job is, like being, being in the fonction publique as a teacher. My husband kind of had to look for places that were relatively close to the school that he was teaching in. So Paris mm -hmm. is very difficult to get housing, especially if your job is not physically in Paris. So we looked a little bit more towards the east, where it's a little bit calmer, 
and we live in a nice little residential town that has not much of anything, but a good place to live, easy access to Paris. Before COVID, I pretty much went into Paris four days a week to three or four days a week to work in Starbucks. Post-COVID, now it's like one day a week, but very easy to get in if I want to. And what it, what it, is, it, what is it about Starbucks, your mobile office, that <laughs> appeals? Because obviously it's an American change, so does it feel like it's going home? Slightly, right. Or? Well, a little bit. And sometimes I do feel like slightly guilty about continually going to Starbucks instead of picking different French cafes, being a legit Parisian, I guess, in some sense. <laughs> but it comes down to a couple things. Like, it's always the same, no matter what Starbucks I go into. Like, I can change my routine of going to different places in the city without actually having to think too much about where specifically I'm going, what specific drink I'm going to order. In the beginning, it was a question of, I didn't really love the taste of coffee without all of the milk and syrups and whatever that you can, that you can get. Your taste buds. Right. So like, (laughs) I didn't necessarily want to like go and order a cafe creme in a French cafe. That's like relatively tiny. And I don't know if it's going to taste good, if I'm going to like it. And then the other thing about Starbucks is they always have a bathroom and they don't care how long you sit there. So Mm -hmm. I've just for years considered, I go to Starbucks, sure, I spend sometimes five or six euros on a coffee, but I just consider that that's my rent for sitting there for three hours Mm -hmm. and doing work. (laughs) And the other thing is like being in a cafe surrounded by people helps me focus. Whereas if I'm at the house, I'm like up and walking around and remaking coffee and get, Mm -hmm. I get distracted easily and and have trouble focusing I agree I agree yeah. there's something peculiar about that that background sound of kind of coffee being made and people chatting that weirdly is very constant. yeah and last year and last year I went to some libraries a little bit because I actually I didn't realize for the first part of the year that libraries were still open even during the some of the confinements so I like I joined the American Library in Paris which is pretty far it's pretty much on the opposite side of Paris from where I live And then I went to like the St. Genevieve Library for a little bit, which is beautiful. I went to the Pompidou Library a couple of times, have anything to drink in there. So you can't like, like I like having my coffee or having my tea or whatever while I'm sitting and working. That's fair enough. And you can't take calls in there either. Calls. Oh, calls. Yeah. Yes, that's, I don't, that's true. I try not to do, I try not to go to Starbucks like on days when I have a lot of calls. I try not to do too many calls from there, especially with clients, but occasionally. So you mentioned earlier your, your kind of love affair with France that started when you were really young. So can you give us uh, a bit more info about your journey between kind of initially falling in love with it and then actually coming to the point of touching down in France for the first time getting your feet on French soil what happens between those two points sure so I France was not actually the first country in Europe that I came to visit I came when I graduated high school I came to Italy with my aunt and uncle the same aunt who had come to France and my little cousin who was four at the time and then I went to college and I started, like, I continued studying French. I was majoring in French. I took 
I took all the French. <laughs> I just had always planned on, I'm going to study abroad in France and it's going to be a full year. And like, that was never a doubt in my mind. I decided to forego, you know, having a second major or having like a concentration or anything, because I just couldn't make it work with a full year of study abroad and, and being able to fulfill all the requirements. So I actually ended up with almost the equivalent of a double major. And I actually, at the beginning of college, my first, my first year and in high school, I basically refused to actually speak French. Like I could write it. I knew all of the vocabulary, had great grammar and reading comprehension and whatever. But I was so self-conscious about speaking, about my accent. Like it was actually kind of a running joke with there were two French teachers in my high school and I had an English teacher who spoke French and it was kind of a running joke between them that despite being basically the best student in French that I wouldn't, I was so shy and self-conscious about speaking. Um, and it So how me, did you get over that when you, you arrived? Right. Well, it actually was after my first year of university, I went to the Middlebury College French School. And the Middlebury, Middlebury is in Vermont. It's about four hours from where I grew up. They have a summer language program in about, I think it's 10 or 11 languages now. It was nine at the time. And you had to go there and live in the dorm with other students. And they brought in faculty from around the world. <clears throat> and you had to speak the language that you were there to study. Like you signed a pledge saying that you would not under any circumstances consume any media or um, speak or listen to or whatever in any language other than the language that you were there to learn. Mm -hmm. And and that was for everybody from like, they, they I think they tolerated for the first week, the people who were complete beginners and who had never picked up a book in the language before that was for everybody no matter what level from beginner to phd candidate wow i got there and i despite not really being comfortable speaking french tested into the first year of their master's program and so i was basically in with a bunch of other people who were French teachers and who were actual adults. And I had just finished my first year of college and I just kind of got thrown into the deep end where if you wanted to communicate, you had to, you had to do it in French and it get like, once you are in that situation, and I find this is true for a lot of my clients too, like who have studied French in the past and who are a little bit rusty because it's hard to keep up when you're not surrounded by it 24 seven. You, there's a period of getting acclimated mm -hmm. and then you get used to it. It comes back really fast, even if you start to forget it. And I remember that first summer, like I was, it, I was so exhausted because it takes so much work in your brain to be living in a foreign language all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other challenge was because people were there to improve their language skills, there was kind of always a thing of people wanted to hang out with the, the people who spoke better than them, but not with the people who spoke 
not as well as them because like your language, your skills can kind of adjust to whoever you're talking to. Mm. They had lots of activities. Like we did theater in French and choir in French, underwater basket weaving in French. There was a July 14th uh, party. It was just, it was a lot of fun and a couple hours of classes a day. I ended up, I ended up going back for, for three summers and earning a master's degree two months after I earned my undergraduate degree by just going for a couple of summers in a row. Wow. Amazing. And so when you, when you first got to France, you were living in France, would you say the language was like your biggest challenge or what did you find the most difficult when you first arrived? Well, when, when I first arrived as a study abroad student, I was enrolled like the, the first year that I was here, I was a study abroad student in the Columbia program at Reed Hall. The biggest challenge then was like, I wanted to do as much of my classes as I could in the French university. I was not interested in hanging out with the other American kids from the program and speaking English. I was working part-time as a teaching assistant in English. At the time they allowed students to, to participate in the TEPIF program, the teaching assistant program in France, even as, as students. So I was doing that. I was just kind of trying to explore Paris. And I was also like on financial aid and on a budget and with my savings and not really not spending my parents' money to travel to every city in Europe every weekend. And there were a couple of people in the program who, who had the means. Good for them. Good for them. They, they saw a lot of different places, but they also like didn't see much of Paris and they didn't necessarily speak a lot of French. So there was like this disconnect between the students who really wanted to have that experience of being in the French university and speaking French. And then in, within the program, it was people who just wanted to be in Paris for the sake of being near or being in Europe. And then when I came back the second time, I was again teaching English. And at this time I was enrolled directly in university. And the second time was quite a different set of challenges. There was definitely, there was definitely like loneliness because I wasn't in a program this time. I had some, I did have some friends from Middlebury who were enrolled in that master's program during the year. I knew people in Paris and in France that those first couple of years, but there was also, I suddenly had to do all of the administrative stuff myself. And I had never been like a real grown up in the US before because I'd always lived in a dorm at university or in my parents' house. And so all of a sudden, like I have to learn, like, how do I, like, what do I do if there's a problem with my electricity or how do I set up my, my electricity contract in the first place? And you have to learn how to say things like, where do I plug in my telephone? And what do I, what do I do with this document? And how do I, I don't know. So the second time around, it was like all of the administrative challenges, not really knowing where to get help or where to find support. And like, there was no Facebook group. There was no, like, there weren't really any internet forums at the time that I knew of anyway, who were supporting students coming to France independently. The international students offices of universities, there's like two or three people for thousands of kids. So there's not, it's not like in the US where 
this where the student is the customer and expects a certain amount of service. It was just kind of a big mess of not really knowing what to do and where to do it, how to do it, not even like having the language words to to ask the questions. And that's what sort of led me to start writing about the process. Like, hey, this is great. The academic experience is great. I love being in France. I love speaking French. I love my master's program, which costs 40, 400 euros for a $40,000 degree from the US. But the bureaucracy stuff, it's kind of a pain in the neck. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think the thing that at the time I thought, well, that's the thing that's holding people, more people back from being able to come to France and do something mm-hmm. like enroll in a French university for 400 euros rather than enroll in whatever American university in Paris, the same program with the same kinds of classes in the same location for $40,000 or $50,000, a hundred times as much. So do you feel like there's a particular, what shall we say, like style to French bureaucracy? I know like working together over the last few months, it seems very obvious that it's 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 almost like a, a big joke how how idiosyncratic the French bureaucratic system is. So do you think it's something particular to France or do you think that it's difficult just because of the language barriers and sort of different ways that people do things? Like, why is it so hard? Well, I think I, I thought a lot about this and like what could theoretically be done to make it better, because And part of the thing is like right now they're in the process, for example, of putting a lot of procedures online. And the idea is to make them more accessible to the the public or more like not having to go out to the prefecture as much or not having to spend the day, spend the day waiting at an appointment, whatever. And you would think that these things would make the situation better, but they don't. And there's a couple problems. One is everything is really compartmentalized. So if you, I don't know, call up the prefecture with a question, like there's one phone number for the prefecture in most, in most cases. And I'm not entirely sure how it works, but I suspect that there's some kind of rotation. So like you may get the person who's responsible for driver's licenses or the person who's responsible for like car registration when you're trying to ask a question about a visa. And like the people who are answering, like aren't the people who are on the front lines. They're not the ones who are processing the documents. There's no like, there's no way to go back and say, oh, well at your appointment, oh, well your colleague Jean-Pierre on the phone told me X, Y, Z. And then the person saying, oh, well, okay. I see why he would have said that. Let me, let me see what I can do and try to fix it. Like there's no, there, there's no like, overlap or accountability between departments and between people like at the bureaucratic level and there are just multiple layers of hoops to jump through that are opaque and so opaque the other administrations don't know what they are or where they are and the other thing that I've really been thinking about a lot is there's like the authority is hierarchical so there, there's like a supervisor in the, in the renewal room for your, your craft de jour who has more authority, but that doesn't mean that people 
in the room are accountable to her in any way or accountable to you, the user of the service. And they're actually like, there isn't really a word for accountability in French, like there's responsibility or rendre des comptes or, or something like that, but there, it's not really, the, the hierarchy itself is opaque. So if you have a problem, too bad because the person who is causing the problem for you can also prevent you from getting a solution or from like interacting with anybody else around the problem. And that this is the case. And it's the case whether it's the prefecture or whether it's I'm dealing with a situation in my son's school right now. There's there's no it, and it depends like and this is not to say that that all people who work in public service are like that, but one thing that that someone said like je suis un, je suis un fonctionnaire qui fonctionne and like they're there to like do a job and the job is not helping you the job is take the papers check off the boxes if the boxes are all checked then take the file if the boxes are not all checked give the file back but not make sure the file is complete or advise the person on how to complete the file like it's not to mm -hmm. make it's not to make your job easier it's to make their job easier so you've obviously had a ton of personal experience dealing with this and then also rather crazily you've decided to take this on for for, your, for our clients as well so what's your kind of secret source that you've developed to kind of navigate around this and and not go too insane with it <laughs> okay so this is the secret that i i will I tell to a lot of my clients and it took me a long time to learn this because I like to know things and I like to be right. And I, that is not a good way to interact with French bureaucracy and, and I don't do, and I don't do it anymore, but I, I, I did have one, a couple of run-ins at the beginning. And you especially don't want to have that type of interaction where somebody has power over you. If you, if the balance of your cut your renewal or your visa application, if, if that's hanging in the balance, you do not want to take an approach of why are you asking me for this document? It's not on the list. I'm not giving, just do your job or whatever. The thing that I tell people to do is to pretend like they are poor idiot Americans who just do not have the French skills to adequately understand what's going on. And can you please help me to understand the process and what would you do in my situation? And is there anything that you could possibly do? And to just be as deferential as possible. Like make them use their power for good and not for evil, <laughs> not to, not to cause you problems, but like they will, mm -hmm. like, there's a shift where like when they think, and, and I actually, I interviewed Jen Lusegle on the podcast and that's going to come out in a couple of weeks. And one of the things that she was talking about was the idea, she brought up the idea of like, this has to do with solidarity. Like if you can make them feel like, like they're doing their duty of being like solidaire with a person who is just like, can't, is pathetic and can't figure anything out. Like you'll get help. 
But if you go in there and act like, I know what to do, I know what the steps are, I just need you to do your job, which is help me and do what I want. Mm-hmm. Spoiler alert, that's not their job. You're going to have a much better time by being polite and by appealing to their sense of wanting to help somebody who is in terrible shape. Mm-hmm. Love it. Oh, that's, I can imagine that's possibly not, not, not something that comes too easily, both to you and to a lot of other people. So um, it's, it's not, but I mean, like once, once you know the procedures and you can, and like, and you don't have anxiety about that, it makes it a lot easier. Like if you don't act, if you actually don't know what the procedure is and you're feeling a lot of anxiety and you're worried that your application isn't going to go through or whatever, like then, then you're in a state of stress and it's really hard to take a step back and, and take that approach when you're, when you're stressed out about it. And then there are certain things that are, if, if it's anything emotionally charged, like, like the situation with, with my son at school, like that's an emotional, like you want to protect your kid and make sure you, your kid has a good experience that at school and that can be, it's, it's harder to take that approach, especially when the person already is not in a state of mind to be able to help you resolve a problem. The, the more you can, the thing is that you have to, like, I like to think of it from a perspective of like the French revolution, like the French revolution wasn't about like in the, in the U S or I think even in the UK a little bit, like there's been sort of like devalorization of titles and like everybody's equal. And we all use you with each other, which is like the informal or, or back in like Shakespeare time, there was like the, the, and the thou and whatever that was like more formal and more equivalent to the vu and everybody just became you. And in France, it was sort of the opposite that happened, which is everybody before it was like the nobility were the vu and like the little people peasants were the two it's moved in the direction of like now everybody is a vu and nobody is a servant of anybody else and if you try to like pull rank right if you try to pull rank if you try to imply that somebody is here to serve you even if it's like a server in a restaurant whose literal job it is to serve, you're going to get a rude and unhelpful response. Fascinating. So I know we've, we've talked a lot about what's difficult about living in France. So let's dive into what's absolutely amazing about living in France. Like what, what's your favorite thing or things that you love about living in France? Well, everybody says the healthcare, but I have to say the healthcare. I mean, you said healthcare. Okay. (laughs) Well, like everybody, like everybody I've interviewed for the podcast so far has like said healthcare, but no, it's from the administrative perspective, it's not necessarily like the easiest admin thing to do, but in terms of like the quality of care and like the simplicity of the system, pay in based on the amount that you earn get healthcare, get the same healthcare as anybody else. And it's good quality. And there's no, there's not really a much of a private pay system. And I, I go back to the US or I see friends on different like mom forums, stuff like that. And they're like, well, we had a copay of whatever. And we had a deductible where we had to pay $3,000 for having a baby. <laughs> and I'm like, why? Like, why is this a thing? Why do you pay into 
thousands of dollars in healthcare costs and then still have to pay more to actually get the healthcare. So there's that. What else is really easy about living here? Public transportation is really good. Like I've lived outside of Paris. I've never had a, I've never had a car. I'm, I'm starting to want a car. I'm ready to, I'm ready to take that step and get my French license that I've been working on since COVID, but I've never needed it for, for living here. Um, those would be my two, those would be my two main things. Access to culture, like having museums all over the place. And until you're like 26 or 28, there are all these great discounts. You barely pay anything for anything. You get super cheap meals all over the place. You get like your transportation costs at like half price. You pay nothing to get into most museums. Turning 27 was kind of a shock for that reason because like all of a sudden, like everything costs money. But other than that, like, And in terms of meeting friends and kind of immersing yourself into the community, you mentioned you obviously felt a bit lonely when you you first arrived, which is completely understandable. Was there any particular like activity or group or approach that really paid dividends for you in terms of introducing you to, should we say, quote unquote, real French people, not when you're at an American university, not not necessarily other English speaking students, but helping yeah. you to really feel like genuinely integrated in the in the country and the community. Well, getting married to a French person really helps. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> Obviously, I don't recommend to everybody, especially if you're already married. <laughs> right then, that would be illegal in France, and you will learn about that at your OP visit. That polygamy in France is highly frowned upon. In Paris, it was really hard. And even like as a student, it was, it was really hard. Like you have really big classes and there are just lots of people and never the same people twice. So there were a couple of things. I joined some choirs. I joined a choir at the American, well, they were, they were both with the same woman. One was through the American church and one was a separate, a separate choir, but they were with French people. It was a mix of all nationalities and a majority French. That helped a little bit, but a lot of people who sing in choirs are older, retired people. So there weren't necessarily a lot of young people. Since we've lived in this town and I've had a kid, it makes it a lot easier, like being involved in the school system. I've been on the PTA since my son entered school. And so you get to know like other parents and what the concerns are for the school and what are the questions that people are asking. I would actually say that I wish I had joined a lot of the American groups and, and expat like things earlier, not because, I mean, obviously like it can help make friends with French people because there are some French people who lived in the U S or who are just interested in speaking English who, who will join those groups. But it really helps you to not feel so isolated and it helps you to like navigate the fact of being an immigrant or an expat in France. Because part of the problem is I had friends in the beginning who were with French university programs, some Americans who had gone to Middlebury, other friends who were teaching in other schools, teaching English. And so then like they made French friends and I made French friends and we sort of like 
shared friends. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like the schools would organize, the schools would organize events and things like that. But eventually most of those people, 90% of them are going to leave and go back to the U S and at mm-hmm. some point, like it can be really difficult, especially like I moved here when I was 22 and pretty much all of the other students who were under 30, under 25 were there for a year or two and, and left and went back. Whereas I was enrolled in a French university. I kind of intended, I wasn't sure from the beginning if I wanted to stay, but I wanted to leave open the possibility of what if this move is forever. So far it's ended up being forever or probably at least until my son turns 18. And it's like hard to have people coming and going and you say a lot of goodbyes in those communities, but you also have like people who have gone before you and who know what the issues are. And I think it was actually a big mistake that I made at the beginning to not look for that support and instead be like, well, I'm going to, you know, integrate and mm-hmm. make friends mainly with French people and speak French all the time. And I don't want to hang out with Americans and speak English all the time because that defeats the purpose. Well, you're making a life here, then you do need that connection to home and being able to reach out to a community and stuff like that. Are you ready to begin taking steps towards your own transformation and begin planning your move to France? I'm Alison Grant-Luness and I've been helping people move to France since 2012. I'd love to hear about your big dreams and identify what kind of support you need to make your dream of moving to France a reality. If you want to know how you can begin the transformation process today, request a free 30-minute transformation clarity call at yourfransformation.com forward slash free slash call. So and I, I noticed you said you use the word home there. So do you feel inside in your heart and soul? Do you, are you an American or are you a French person? It's funny because when I go to the US, I feel like a French person, but in France, I definitely feel like an American. And I'm, I'm very attached to, to like the, I don't know, like the can do it motivational American dreamy kind of attitude that I, that I had growing up of like, you can work hard and create something and things like that, which is not common here. I feel like at the core of my personality, I'll always be American, but there are certain parts too that like make me feel very at home here. Like there's constant complaining and there's like uh, rallying to go on strike when there are major problems. And, and I'm, and I'm all about like voicing my grievances and, and telling the world what I really think, but yeah. I'm glad you found some common ground. <laughs> Time for a quick fire round now. So you have to open, you have to open, you have to answer these in one or two words. Okay. 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 Favorite French snack. Ooh, a savory or sweet? Well, I would have to go with a crepe with Nutella, banana, cocoa. Okay. Good choice. Favorite Parisian park. Ooh, I think I'll have to go with okay favorite ice cream flavor favorite satisfying word to say in french oh well the one that pops into my mind is one that's in like geek i think a lot which is no it's belgian sorry it's belgian it's a belgian word i think can you say it again <laughs> what does that mean 
it's just kind of like an exclamation of like <laughs> uh shock or surprise cool <laughs> what is your favorite french wine well we love it's a very it's a very inexpensive bordeaux wine called blaisac and it's like four or five euros in the grocery store and it's just really good and it's really smooth and that's our go that's our go-to purchase at the grocery store most overrated parisian tourist attraction oh well now i'm gonna have to say the eiffel tower because they it used to be it used to be like open underneath where you could like just go to the park and like walk under it and now they've like walled it all off so you can't even get close to it anymore so can you actually get in anymore or you have to you can get in but you have right. to have tickets you have to have tickets right, right. And, and buy them in advance like you can't just like I used to go you can you used to be able to like get off at Trocadero and like look over the look over the river and see it and then walk down and walk across the bridge facing it and then walk under it and go all the way down to the end of the the Champ de Mars park and there was like a little memorial there um, and it used to be a really nice walk and now they've totally ruined it. Probably, <laughs> probably Hidalgo, I don't know. Okay, one thing, one food item that you miss most from the US? Right now it's banana peppers. What's that? <laughs> they're like little yellow, they're like little yellow peppers. They're not like super spicy oh, like jalapenos. Got you. Like chili um, peppers, okay. That's the shape, but they're, they almost taste like they're like pickled but they're really good like when I was home this summer we had a lot of banana pepper and pepperoni pizza and it was delicious and I really regret not bringing back a jar <laughs> love it love it so I, I realize we're getting towards the end of our hour now it's been absolutely lovely so a couple more questions and then we'll wrap up so right. first of all what does the next year hold for you do you think Ooh, that's a good question. We have spent so much time. Do you mean like in the business or generally? <laughs> we have we have spent so much energy during the past couple of months, like putting together all of these like great programs and putting them online and like setting everything up in this super nice area where people can learn all about living in France. And we have all of these things that are now serving our, our clients and providing better support to them. So I'm, I'm hoping that it will involve more people taking advantage of these programs and it's going to involve a new edition of foolproof French visas because there have been several changes that we need to update people on. And I think it's going to just involve sharing lots of lots and lots of tips and tricks and hopefully getting some other professionals to share their expertise with with our clients and with our group as well amazing sounds good can't wait i'm excited and the question for me what what is it about working with your clients that you really love like what what happens when you get that kind of really juicy feeling when you're like, oh, this is amazing that I get to do this every day and you watch a client overcome a hurdle or get excited about something? Like, tell us what it, why, why do you do this business? Like, why do you love helping people navigate this? Okay, well, obviously there's like, everybody that I'm working with has dreamed sometimes for many years of, 
moving to Paris. And it's very exciting to be a part of making somebody's dream come true. And my, my master's degree from the French university was actually in like folktales and fairy tales. And I did like the structure of the fairy tale and like all of the different, every, the function of like all of the different characters. <laughs> and I sort of like see myself as like the little fairy godmother, like provide, cause there's like the hero, like steps out on the hero's journey, like to achieve, to achieve the goal or to find them, to find the thing. And then it's like, who does the hero meet? Like the hero meets like the villain who poses a challenge and then they meet like the magical helper who gives a magical object to, to the hero or tells a, tells a secret clue that's going to unlock the next step of the journey. And that's like sort of the role that I kind of try to take and, and that I sort of identify with is that I'm just kind of here to like, you, you have your dream of what it is that you see yourself doing in France, what you want to create in your life. And like, my goal is to kind of, I know what the bureaucracy is. I know what the tools are that you're going to need to be able to do that. And I just kind of want to like bippity boppity boo and like say the magic words and, and open sesame. sort of help you open sesame and, and figure out how to access that. And if you start, you start planning in advance and you start like, and if you start from the concept of like, what do I really want? Then most of what you actually want to do is going to be is going to be possible. It's the people who just kind of like jump into things without really knowing what their end goal is, who can kind of end up having problems because they end up with the wrong visa or they can't, you know, renew or they can't work and do the thing that they want to do. And then the other thing is that I just really love like having ideas and creating all kinds of businesses. And so like the thing that I enjoy doing a lot is just talking to my clients about what their business idea is for their Profession Libéral visa or their, their visa for starting a business in France, coming up with ideas for that. And then it's like a whole business that we create together, but then I actually don't have to do the work of <laughs> starting and running a whole separate <laughs> business <laughs> that I already have, but I can come up with but I sort of like get an outlet for all of the ideas that I have. Uh, to, and I get to connect to all the people that I know, because obviously like there are 14, over 14,000 people in my Facebook group. And I've been here a while. I know who does what. I, I have a client right now who is in book publishing. And, and so I'm thinking, okay, well, I know this person who works in publishing and these people who are in France who are writing books and this person might be a good connection for her and, and stuff like that. So I, I sort of, know who to connect with and that's (laughs) kind of fun and that's kind of fun too and I it's a good rewarding job amazing love it so just to wrap up if you could look back well either look back to your younger days or talk directly to anyone who's watching this video and who has had a dream of moving to France or taking a sabbatical or uh, a degree or a retirement in France and they're still hesitant and scared about all the what-ifs and the buts and the hows what would you tell them from someone that's lived in France for as long as you have? Well, I, I would say that the two most important things are, that you're going to have to start with are what is the viability of 
especially if they're not retirement age. If you're retirement age and like you just want to have some hobbies, then this isn't going to come into play. But what do you really want to be doing for the next five, 10-ish years of your life in terms of your career? And are you are you going to be making money, earning money, and in what ways? And the second question would be, how does moving to France impact you financially, not just in terms of like what you're doing for your career or what you're doing for money, but how does it affect assets or income that you already have? Those are the, those are the two like main subjects. I think people really need to, to get very clear on, ask a lot of questions about to experts and professionals before even considering is moving to France right for me. These incidentally are the first two modules of Fast Track to France, because like, if you need to earn an income, then you want to make sure that you're going to be able to do that. And if you need to, if you would be negatively affected in terms of your tax situation, like you want to know in advance and then understand that with an accountant and understand what the risks are and what, and what the, what your costs would be. So that you can make an educated decision about, is it worth the cost of having to pivot my career or having to like, I don't know, end my trust or things like that. Mm-hmm. I think those are, those are the two topics where you're going to come up with deal breakers. And then the rest of it is just take little steps at a time, like have the Eiffel Tower hanging in your bathroom or (laughs) right on your phone screen or like have packets of French lavender in your underwear drawer and, and, and things like that, that can remind you that even if it's not something that's going to happen right away, there are things you can be doing now and learning about now to, to move towards that goal. Amazing. Well, we've come to the end of our hour. Alison, that was lovely to interview you. I've, I've asked you all the questions that I've wanted to ask for a long time. So thank you so much for being so honest. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Um, it's been really fun working with you so far. And I hope that all of our clients will also see how fun you are and how much <laughs> wonderful stuff you helped me to create for them all of this year and next year and for all the years. Thanks for listening to this episode of Profiles in Transformation with Alison Grant Luness. If you liked this episode, please like, subscribe, and share on social media. I'll see you next time for a new episode. And in the meantime, I hope we've inspired you today to pursue your dreams, no matter how big or small. Remember, the way you bring your own dreams into reality is by believing in yourself and taking small steps towards your goal. Start today, start now, and à bientôt.